Hi everyone, this is Deb from Dying to be Found. I wanted to take a moment to tell you about our true crime podcast. Every week, I pull in different family members to talk about true crime. We don't always discuss high-profile crimes, though. We leave the format completely open to your interpretation and also cover missing persons, cold cases, and other criminal activities. Starting in Season 2, we're adding bonus episodes and drop-in guests from other podcasts. You can listen to brand new episodes every Thursday and every Wednesday with our new mini-episodes called The Dash. Be sure to tune in wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media at Dying to be Found. Talk to you soon, tell your friends, and don't forget to leave a five-star review. Crime Scenes and Cupcakes is a true crime investigative podcast. We discuss cases regarding the assault, murder, sexual assault, or cases involving the abuse or abduction of adults or children. These topics can be very disturbing and a trigger to many individuals, so please listen accordingly. If you or someone you know is struggling or in crisis, help is available. You can text, call, or chat 988. This is available 24-7. It is also available in multiple languages for anyone who needs mental health related or suicide crisis support. It can connect you with trained crisis counselors. Also, if you are in Wichita, there is a local crisis center. Call 316-660-7500. Hey guys, it's Marianne, Dog Mom Baker, True Crime Podcast Maker, and my voice sounds a little rough this morning. I've been working on a podcast that I was supposed to have out last night, but every time I was editing it, it just didn't feel right to me. The podcast is about Lila's Law. You guys, if you go back in our archives, you will find the case of Corbin Brettenbach you listen to that podcast, you will find the disdain I have for this man oozing from every word I speak. It also talks about Jessica's law and this beautiful young woman whose life was taken away from her by this predator. His name was Cooey. And he lived nearby this little girl's home and he buries her alive while her father is screaming her name throughout the neighborhood. Now, because of that law and that law being adapted by here in Kansas, another serial predator, Corbin Brettenbach, he crosses paths with a beautiful seven-year-old little girl. And he does everything he can to destroy her life. But this little girl, and in that podcast, we call her Lily. And Lily, she fought for her life. He tried to take away her soul and that that gives her life. And one of the things last night, as you guys know, I was at the the event, Take Back the Night, and Lily got up, not her real name, and she shared her story with the group, and she was there with her family. And you see the strength she draws from her family. And one of the things I always forget to talk about, and it's not my podcast, but one of the things she shares from her story is the fact that she was returned to the bed after the incident occurred. She went back to the bed with her brother. And you don't think about the other victims in this case, that her brother was 
on that sleepover with her. Her brother shares the burden of what she goes through with her. Her brother was there with her along the way. And hearing the more of this story just strengthens my resolve that the law she is spearheading and that she and her family are fighting for is something we truly need to get behind. So originally this podcast was about, as I had listened to Lila's Law, one of the things Lila states when she is addressing Topeka is that there are other laws for other girls out there. The only problem is none of those girls are alive as their laws are made because the laws are made because they're a legacy of sorts to these girls. Now, we will cover one law of a woman who fought hard and she is a hero because she saw an error in a system. She's a sexual assault survivor and this is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And she saw that and she found it. And this woman works to repair the errors within this system. So we're going to get to her. But I just wanted to kind of, this podcast is different. Normally we have one story. And we talk about that one story. But thanks to Lila and her family, we're covering many stories because she has really opened our eyes and shared with us just how one story affects so many. What happens to one person, though it may be one person staying in one person's state, and that law just may have been created. Jessica's law was just created for Jessica for just there. But then it gets bigger and you realize you need it for elsewhere. You have Megan's law. You have Amber alerts. And we're going to get into all of these. But I just want to say to that young woman and her family last night, they made a huge impact on me. And the Wichita Area Sexual Assault Center knows that they always make an impact whenever I talk to them. Any of the people I talk to within the group, and every one of them as you are, you are always an attestment to what true strength is and in what you do to keep a community involved and how to keep a community together not just those who have walked through the fire, but everyone else and how we can all be a part to help those who have walked through that fire and how we can be a part who may not have had our own personal experiences or those who have personal experiences but on the different sides of the law, the different sides of the tables. And you guys have allowed us to discuss what we want to do to help and give us ideas of what we can do to help. And so I just want to challenge any of you that are listening. What can you do to help? Because there are so many there are so many, so many that you don't even know the person sitting next to you may be a victim of some sort of violence in their lives. And it's just being there and knowing the right things to say that could totally shift the winds in their world. So this is just my little segue in the podcast and 
I hope it helped, has helped you a little bit as they have helped me. And I really hope we can get behind this bill. And I really hope this family continues to tell me more of what I can do. Because I hope that this is the first time you hear from Lila and Sarah. But I pray it's not the last. I hope this is a relationship that can begin to grow. And we can do many things from here. And we can change the landscape of how survivors and victims and how we all can work together and make this world a little bit of a safer place. Marshall, Texas, in a motel room on December 1st of 2013, Carrie Dunn took her three children to see her estranged husband, Brad. Carrie had begun the process of ending her 10-year marriage, and she was already seeing someone new about two weeks earlier. The couple had separated, um, and they left the kids in the one room, and they decided to go into the motel bathroom to talk. But Brad... He didn't really want to talk. Instead, he pulls out a knife and he stabs Carrie 21 times. Now, while he's doing this, their nine-year-old daughter, she hears what's going on to her mother and she starts to call 911. But... The motel phone requires users to dial 9 before the phone number, even for 911. And she's 9 years old. She couldn't figure this out. So she didn't know how to call the police. She didn't know what to do. So this little girl is in this motel room. Her father is stabbing her mother repeatedly. And she's just, you're told as a child, 911, 911. There is never, your teachers never say, except if you're in a motel room, hit nine first. Dial nine to call out. Dial nine to call out. That is never ingrained into a child's head. So this little girl is just hitting 911. She's terrified. She doesn't know what to do, and she can't figure out why she can't get the phone to call out. So that's why Carrie's Law has been enacted. Because of this motel phone, this young girl was unable to summon the police to the scene, and her mother died. First enacted in Texas, where it happened. And it's signed into federal law by President Donald Trump in February of 2018. Carrie's Law makes it mandatory for multi-line telephone systems to have a way to call 911 that bypasses any normally required phone codes prior to dialing. I'm sure that's something a lot of parents don't think about. When you go to a hotel and you see the little stickers on the phone so you don't think, okay, let me teach my child what number they need to hit to call 911 in case of an emergency. But Carrie's Law, I want you guys to take that with you today. If you're traveling with your small child and there is a special way to call 911, it shouldn't be dialing 9 to get out. It should just be, they should just be able to hit 911 but even now, certain motels will just have you hit it. But in a case of an emergency, make sure your child knows what they need to hit to contact 911. Lauren's Law is about an Illinois high school senior named Lauren Lehman. She was 18 years old when she collapsed during drill team practice in February of 2008. She had a heart condition called mitral valve prolapse. 
That caused one of her heart valves to improperly close at times, and it contributed to a sudden cardiac arrest. That cardiac arrest led to her death. It took 13 minutes for medical personnel to arrive. They took Lama to the emergency room of the nearest hospital. Her father believed the presence of someone who could have performed CPR or administered an AED, an external defibrillator, that would have saved her life. So, Lauren's law was passed in the Illinois General Assembly in June of 2014. This act requires schools properly train and educate students and faculty in the use of CPR and automated external defibrillators in the course of regular curriculum. Students without parental approval are excused, which don't get me started on that. However, let's talk about that for a moment. There was a student recently in Connecticut who had suddenly hit the ground and laid there. The teachers stated they thought the child was playing dead. So rather than checking on the child, they ignored the child. The child had a condition, a heart condition, and the child was going into cardiac arrest. The teachers did not follow up on the child or anything soon enough. They had a defibrillator on site, but they didn't do anything, and the child died. We don't need another law named after a child to explain to them to use the devices on your school grounds. A lot of people, and this actually happens a lot, and it's something that I speak out against a lot. Because I have non-compaction cardiomyopathy, which is a very serious heart condition that was misdiagnosed all of my life. Because I had it. It's something you're born with. My son now has it. And you can die from it. It, it is one of the biggest contributing factors to this is sudden cardiac arrest. And one of my frustrations is, is that people do not believe young people can die of sudden cardiac arrest. Matthew Shepard was a 21-year-old openly gay man attending college at the University of Wyoming in 1998. While hanging out in a bar on the night of October 6th and through the early hours of October 7th, 1998, Russell Henderson and Aaron McKinney approached Shepard. The three men talked, and then Shepard willingly left with the pair in McKinney's father's truck. McKinney and Henderson drove Shepard to an isolated spot where they pistol-whipped his skull, kicked him in the genitalia, tied him to a split-rail fence, and left him to die. Shepard was discovered 15 to 18 hours later by a cyclist and taken to a hospital where he died from his injuries four days later. McKinney and Henderson were both sentenced to two consecutive life sentences in prison. Suspecting Shepard's assault was a hate crime based on his sexual orientation, the Matthew Shepard Act was signed into law by President Barack Obama on October 28, 2009. The law provides monetary and educational resources to law enforcement agencies for the investigation and prosecution of hate crimes. It also makes it illegal to attempt to cause harm injury, or death to individuals under one of six protected classes. Carmen Huertas, 
was drunk after consuming cognac at a family party before driving seven 11-year-old girls to a sleepover in October of 2009. After allegedly taunting the girls with, raise your hand if you think we're going to crash. Huertas drove onto the highway, lost control, and flipped the 1998 Mercury Sable multiple times. Three of the 11-year-old girls were ejected from the vehicle. One girl, Leandra Rosado, was killed within moments of the impact, while the other girls all suffered varying injuries. Sorry, this case, if you haven't read the case, I strongly recommend you look up the Carmen Huertas case. Or you can also look up Leandra's Law. Leandra's Law went into effect on December 18, 2009, and increases the possible prison sentence for drunk drivers that kill or seriously injure children under the age of 16 in their vehicle. Convicted drivers are required to install an ignition interlock breathalyzer device at their own expense on their vehicles and will carry that restriction on their driver's license. Such devices lock the car until the driver breathes into them to prove their blood alcohol levels are safe to drive. I know a lot of people are aware of this next law, Kaylee's Law. Two-year-old Kaylee Anthony was missing for a month before her mother, Casey Anthony, reported her as missing to law enforcement in July of 2008. Kaylee's remains were subsequently found near the Anthony home, prompting a trial in which Casey was the prime suspect. The trial garnered media and public attention for Casey's partying during the month her daughter was missing. Casey was acquitted of the murder charges and found guilty of lying to the police. The public was outraged that a two-year-old girl could be undocumented as missing for a month with little to no repercussions for the mother. So what Kaylee's law requires is for parents or guardians to be required. And, you know, people ask, why should this have to be a law? And now we have seen how many parents now have done this. But it is now a law that if you don't know where your child is, you have to report it within 24 hours of their disappearance. And again, why do we have to make this a law? So that the police have something to hold these parents on. It also requires the death of a child to be reported within the hour. Individuals failing to adhere to these standards face felony charges with jail time that varies in the states that have adopted the law. Adam Walsh was six years old when he went missing in a Florida mall on July 27, 1981. Although his mother had been shopping only miles away, Otis E. Toole was able to grab the child and it's suspected it was Otis Tool, and evade ground and air searches performed by law enforcement. 16 days after Adam went missing, a severed head was found by some fishermen near the state turnpike. Adam's parents, John and Reva Walsh, began working towards strengthening the laws that protected their children from abductors four days after they buried their son. They pushed the Missing Children's Act that was enacted in 1982 and co-founded the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. John became the host of America's Most Wanted in 1988. 
President George W. Bush signed the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act on July 27, 2006. The act took the sex offender registries of individual states and combined them into one entity that could be accessed across the United States. This meant that a registered sex offender moving from Ohio would still have their criminal history available to the authorities in Texas. The act created education funding for state and local authorities to assist them in recognizing and policing attempts to victimize minors across the internet. It presented mandatory minimum sentencing guidelines, implemented harsher sentences for crimes against children, and provided resources via grants to assist states in keeping sexual offenders with a low probability of rehabilitation off the streets. Megan Kenka was seven years old. She was living with her parents in New Jersey. She loved puppies. So when neighbor Jessie Timendequa approached her on July 29th, 1994, with promises of showing her the puppy in his house, she couldn't say no. Now Jesse, he was a twice convicted sex offender. He sexually assaults and murders Kanka, then leaves her body to be found in Mercer County Park the next day. Megan's Law was added to the existing Jacob Wetterling Crimes Against Children Act. And we're going to actually, these must have got out of order, but we'll come to that. It requires states to notify residents in a neighborhood if a convicted sex offender moves in nearby. Some states provide a database that can be accessed to determine if any sex offenders are living close proximity, while others will actively send notices to residents. And I wish more did that. I don't know if you guys have ever wondered where the creation of sex registries had come from for sex offender registries. Unfortunately, we owe that to Jacob Wetterling. The formation of sex registries was created in 1994 as part of Jacob Wetterling's law. Jacob Wetterling was just 11 years old when he was abducted and murdered. His killer wasn't identified until 2016 when he was in custody for child pornography charges. As one of many young boys sexually assaulted in the area from 1988 to 1989, the publicity of his case helped legislators choose his name for the law. As part of the Federal Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, the Wetterling Act required states to create sex offender registries and add a heightened class for sexually violent predators. They require address verification and provide procedures to protect the public. Tom Lichner was a real estate agent who was showing a Houston home when a man looking at the house sexually assaulted her. Her husband arrived and confronted the attacker who was later revealed to be a twice convicted sex offender. Her attacker was sentenced to 20 years in prison, but he ended up being up for parole in two years, two flipping years, guys. When Lyncher was notified about the parole hearing, she contacted the city of Houston's victim's assistance office, where through connections with victims of gun violence, she formed Justice for All to advocate against violent crime. She worked to amend the Wetterling Act to enact the Pam Lyncher Sexual Offender Tracking and Identification Act of 1996, which established a national database at the FBI to track sexually violent predators and increase the duration of state registration requirement from 10 years to 10 years to life, depending on the number of prior convictions and the type of crime committed. 
So far, she is the first living victim that the laws are named after, guys. She's the first one who is, was alive to have a law named after her. That's horrific. Many of you are aware of Amber Alerts. We get them on our phones. We have them all the time. As I mentioned early on in this podcast, last night we had two children go missing in the neighborhood. It was terrifying. And I remember at one point as we are searching through the woods, because I mean, we're up behind a huge wildlife area. And we're going up around the creeks and there's at one point I'm about ready to give, I mean, it, it's starting to get dark and I'm turning around looking at one of the people I'm looking with and I'm like, we need to call 911. It's we're we're at that point. We are, I don't think we're going to find them. And of course you think Amber Alert. And at this point, these children would not have been a criteria for Amber Alerts because we didn't have a vehicle. And you have to have a vehicle when it comes to Amber Alerts. But Amber Alerts are named after Amber Hagerman. In 1996, nine-year-old Amber Hagerman was kidnapped while riding her bicycle in Arlington, Texas. And she was brutally murdered. A mother in the area, Diana Simone, who had been following the publicized case, called the radio station asking if alerts go out for missing children the way they did for the national weather system. The Dallas-Fort Worth broadcasters and local police took the idea to develop an early warning system to help find missing children. Other states began to create similar alliances, and in 2003, President Bush signed the PROTECT Act to give grants to states to set up similar systems now known as Amber Alerts in all 50 states. I want to tack on something else to this. Yeah, I've become a little bit of a TikTok junkie on True Crime Talk or whatever that's called. Crime Talk or whatever. But there is a TikTok out there about an Amber Alert that goes out with some people that are on a bus. And an Amber Alert goes out. And a few of the guys that are on the bus look at the Amber Alert and they notice a little girl traveling with a woman. And they are like, I, sh- I think that's the girl. And they begin milling around. They begin talking. And you see the camera on this. And they they go to the bus driver several times. She tries to call it in. And they're just like, oh... We, we don't know what to do. We, you know, everybody seems to be brushing it off. And, you know, it's that situation of, oh, my God, this is the girl. And I will tell you one point of that, the the guys who calls in, I, I see one point of where it's like, oh, we're putting this on the bus driver and we're going to go ahead and get off the bus. And anybody who knows me, I would have stayed on the bus. I I wouldn't have left. (laughs) I would see this story through. I would stay there till police show up, but that's me. But police do eventually show up and it is the girl. So anyone who thinks that people who get the Amber Alert just look at it and move on with their day. And I have seen those little college humor jokes. Who is an Amber Alert? What are we supposed to do? No, there are some of us who, if that Amber Alert comes out in our area, as you guys have seen, if it comes out in my area, some of us do clock those alerts. We do look at those children involved in those alerts. And we take those alerts seriously. And we go on alert. Now, do we go out actively combing our neighborhoods? No. But that's not what the Amber Alert is for. That's the police that go do that. We don't take their jobs. But we go on alert, which is what the Amber Alert is supposed to do. You become aware of your surroundings and you clock. You look to see if any of those identifying markers 
are anywhere as you go about your day, or if you might know any of the individuals involved or anything else. So Amber Alerts are extremely important, and we keep on those in the name and the tradition of Amber Hagerman. So it never happens to another child. So now we come to, we're going to come full circle to Jessica's Law. Now we discuss Jessica's case in the case I mentioned before of Corbin Brettenbach, but I'm going to go over just a little bit here. Jessica Lunsford was nine years old when a neighbor, John Cooey, entered her Florida home in the night and told her to come with him. That night, February 23, 2005, Cooey led Lunsford to his sister's trailer and sexually assaulted the little girl repeatedly over the course of three days. Cooey, a convicted sex offender, then buried Lunsford alive near his sister's trailer where the police found her remains on March 19, 2005. He was convicted of burglary, kidnapping, sexual battery, and first-degree murder in March of 2007, and later sentenced to death before succumbing to cancer in 2009. Florida Governor Jeb Bush signed Jessica's Law in 2005. It provides harsh, mandatory penalties for criminals convicted of specific sexual crimes committed against children aged 11 or under. Under the mandatory prison sentences served, those convicted under Jessica's law are tracked by GPS for the rest of their lives. After I recorded the Corbin Brettenbach and the Jessica Laws podcast, somebody had left me a voice note on my Spotify and they didn't really leave away. They just said the mother of the girl who had been attacked wanted to speak with me. But there was no way for me to reach her. I didn't know the name of the child because it is never released because she's a minor. And there was no identifying. So me being who I am, though, I, I, I tried doing all of my investigative work. And I got nowhere. And I thought, ah, oh, damn it. I, I really want to know. And I, I want to help because she said this mom is wanting to do something. This mom is, she's working on something and she wants to do something. And it's like, gosh, darn it. I, I really tried. I mean, I was like, I want to talk to this parent. And, but I, I couldn't figure it out. And I, I kept trying to figure it out and I couldn't figure it out. And I think I even posted something on Facebook or somewhere trying to find something. Never heard anything. It's like, darn it. Okay. I got nothing. So months go by. And then I'd, I'd actually kind of forgot about it a little bit. And then I get a message from um, someone. And she identifies herself as the mother of this young woman and says that she is interested in talking to me. And I was like, hold the phone. I think this is her. Now, of course, we as true crime podcasters, we are, we verify all of our information. So of course we, we trade some information back and forth and then we also meet. And this person, I got to tell you, she is incredible as she shares their journey of what happened to her daughter and what they have been doing since then and their plans for the future. And not only that, asking how I am willing to be a part of it. And I am so flipping honored. I am so blown away. These are two of the most powerful women I have ever met. We're going to talk about them a little bit today. Now, 
I have called this young woman, Lily, in our previous podcast, but her name is not Lily. And she recently testified in Topeka because this young woman is wanting to create a law, like one of the many laws we just spoke about. She wants a law to make a difference, to protect people. Because as we talked earlier, only one of the people on that list is still alive. How many people had to die for legislation to change? For it to, I mean, it's kind of reminds me of the here's your sign kind of a thing that we have warning labels on things because somebody had to be stupid enough to do something. So we need people out there to break the law on something to create a law that people have to be evil enough to do something for a law to be broken. So I'm going to go over. I'm unsure if I want to share with you what happened to this young woman or if I want you to hear it from her. And I think I'm going to let you hear it from her and then I'll share a little bit. I'm going to start off by letting you hear Sarah's, who is Lila, that is Lily. Her name is Lila. I'm going to let you start off by hearing Sarah's introduction when she was testifying in Topeka. And then you will hear Lila as she's beginning to testify. I will not be playing the whole thing. So I will let you hear from them for a moment. And one of the things I do want to share that Sarah had shared with me when she had reached out to me is on their way to Topeka, Sarah played my podcast. And again, if you go back and listen to the podcast that I created about Corbin Brettenbach and that case, she played it on the way up there. And that case goes through that, it goes through Jessica's case, which is a horrific case. And then it goes through reliving what Corbin Brettenbach did. And so the fact that Sarah and Lila were able to sit in a car and listen to me go over those words just blew me away that they both were sitting in a vehicle listening to my voice tell these words I just kept apologizing. Um, but I wanted to share that story because at the time, Brettenbach was trying to appeal his way out of the system again, which he got denied because, of course, it was a bunch of bull hockey. And, um, but they were going up there as they're trying to pass Lila's Law. And they're going through the procedure and they are still working towards it. And we're going to talk more about that. But she's listening to my words go over the events that happened to her. And as she's, as Sarah is sharing this with me, all I could think of is this young woman is the most incredible, badass I've ever come across in my life because I would never be able to do that. And this girl, this woman, sat there listening to details of one of the most horrific experiences she was forced to endure. And somebody was sharing it. As she was going to testify about it. So keep that in mind. That she listened to this. And go back and listen to that podcast maybe even before you've 
go back and go listen to that podcast and then come back here. Because you need to know what she heard about herself before you hear how she testified in Topeka. Because she heard those words before she gets ready to speak the words you're going to hear. So go do that if you haven't already listened and come and hell, even if you already listened to it once, go listen to it again. Because you know what? That money just goes to raising money for a billboard for the missing. So go listen to it again and come back here and listen to this. We'll wait. Hello, um, I'm Sarah Autry, Lila's mom. My husband, Brian, Lila's father, unfortunately couldn't be here as he's working today, but he asked me to thank all of you for your time, duty, and interests in hearing why we believe that Lila's law should be part of a seemingly small number of commitments required by those who house certain individuals currently under state supervision. I've already given you a small rundown of what it was like for us in 2017 and beyond by way of my written testimony. I don't particularly want to spend my next few minutes trying to describe the entirety of the last 68 months. It's been a nightmare. Lila's Law intends to enhance the safety and security of our community by ensuring curfews are held to a higher standard in the future than they have been in the past. It does not intend to create more work for those who already work hard to keep our community safe. Rather, it is intended to be a commitment made by those who house certain individuals currently under state supervision. If one chooses to allow a known and convicted offender to into their home for the purposes of dwelling, we would hope that there would be an interest in the safety and security uh, for the rest of us in the community. Perhaps in some instances, those interests are not shared by individuals who knowingly and willingly allow an offender to live with them. But I believe that those interests are shared by everyone in this room. We ask that when housing an offender, it would be agreed upon that should the offender not be home during scheduled curfew hours, that the person or people who signed contracts and jumped through hoops in order to provide living quarters for that specific offender would contact the appropriate authorities to inform them that the offender is not home in efforts to potentially lower the time it takes to make arrests and uh, create a reasonable accountability toward a commitment to help keep our communities safe. If the if the offender is not home during the curfewed hours, no one has called in, and then that offender proceeds to commit a new crime, Lila's law would take effect. For example, Corbin Breitenbach on June 11, 2017, violated his then current parole by going to bars on a, and on a party bus. Personally, we don't care that he did that. That did not hurt anybody. Uh, he went over to his girlfriend's house again, we don't care. That wasn't hurting anyone. He claimed to want to go jogging while intoxicated. Again, not really anyone's problem. None of those actions would have caused Lila's law to come into effect. While he may or may not have had consequences related to his current commitments, he had not gone on. Had he not gone on to commit attempted capital murder against my daughter, Lila's law would take effect. Because of the new crimes committed while on parole, and because no one reported his absence, Lila's law would take effect. When I was seven years old, I went to a sleepover. After we had all gone to bed, a man broke in. I did not know this man, and I woke up to him holding me in his arms and walking down the hallway. He put me on the couch and told me to do something, but I said no, so he put his hands around my neck and choked me out. I was unconscious. I thought it must have all been a crazy dream because I woke up back in bed, but I wasn't wearing the same thing I had gone to sleep in, and there was blood everywhere. And when I saw myself in the mirror, I looked dead. And I shouldn't have to tell you everything that happened because they put it all over the news. Sometimes I wish I could remember more that happened to me. And some people say it's good that I don't remember much, but most of the time I feel like not knowing what I feel like knowing what happened to me is better than coming up with a million scenarios and not knowing which one is real and which ones are just thoughts. And the things I do remember take forever to get out of my head. They told me that he would be in prison for the rest of his life because of Jessica's law. 
Jessica's law is a law because in 2005, a girl named Jessica was kidnapped, raped, and murdered. The man who did this to Jessica had done this to someone else before, and that is why it's Jessica's law. And that was almost me. Megan's law was is a law because Megan was raped and killed when she was seven. And Amber alerts are a thing because of a girl named Amber who was kidnapped and murdered while riding her bike at the age of nine. Um, almost all of these laws, and almost all of the laws named after people are because something bad happened to them. These people had to die for there to be a change. Why did it take someone to die to make these changes? I want to help make sure this does not happen to somebody else because someone wasn't where they were supposed to be. If someone is supposed to be home because they went to prison but isn't home, somebody should tell someone before something worse happens. So Lila got up there, and you can also find this on YouTube, and we'll we'll put links to this on our YouTube. And like I said, I met up with Sarah, and I need to take her for cupcakes, because we went and got donuts. And I will tell you, as Sarah is sharing her journey with me, I probably ate two bites of my donuts, maybe, because literally most of my time was spent with my jaw on the table. Because this mom, I don't want to call her a badass. Because what she is transcends all badassery. She is a mama bear, a mama shark, a mama koala bear, which is a badass of all. All of that tied together. She did things that I was like, do you realize you could have gotten yourself killed? And I don't want to share too much about Sarah's story and what she went through as she went through this process. Because Sarah is writing a book about what they went through. Now, Sarah has um, a TikTok and some other things, a YouTube channel, and we will share those as she allows us to. Um, again, I don't like to take anyone else's story from them. It is theirs and theirs only. But I will tell you, the thing she was telling me, I will buy her book and buy one for everybody I know for Christmas. Because it is just the pieces I've heard so far. Holy cow, this woman is amazing. And I can see where her daughter got her strength and her passion. And they are still working on overcoming that tragedy. But man, they are doing it as a family. I have worked in so many cases with so many victims and I have seen an event like this completely obliterate a family. But this family is so held together by love and you see it and you feel it and oh guys just it is the most incredible thing. This piece of pure evil he tried to take away their spirit and because if you go back and listen to that case this dude has rung them through the legal system he was the horrific piece of crap but man he ran them through it he taunted their lives he did horrible things to their seven-year-old child, but that wasn't enough. He kept attacking that family. He didn't even know them, but he continued to attack that family. His own family ran their family through some horrible things, but this family continues to fight and pull together, and it is just absolutely incredible. This family just 
is incredible. So I want you guys, they are actually going to come on the podcast. Um, we're working on timing that out and to talk a little bit more. So we'll get into that in greater detail and share some more information. But one of the things is, is, you know, we're really wanting to work with them on this law. I told them the next time they go to Topeka, I want to make it just a giant road trip. I want them to have a huge support system there. I want to have them shown that, you know, Wichita supports her and her family and we are behind her and, you know, across Kansas, not just Wichita, damn it. Let's get people there. Let's, you know, we're there to support her. She is not alone. So, you know, she, she just amazes me. Just an absolutely incredible person. And, yeah, just, I'm in awe. I am in awe. You know, people talk a lot about what I've done in my past and what, you know, my accomplishments or whatever. And I'm just like, this young lady, she is going to do amazing things. She is going to do something absolutely incredible with her life. She is already a phoenix well on her way of setting the rest of the world on fire. And I cannot wait to see what she does. It's absolutely incredible. I want to thank all of you guys for listening. Also, don't forget, it is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So please make sure, you know, we are running out of time. Even though Sexual Assault Awareness does not end with April, we want to continue to believe those who want to tell us and share their stories, but continue to share cases, continue to share information. Also, Fasika Tadell's father is going to be coming on our podcast. He has some information he wants to share with Fasika's case. As we know, there are some language barriers, so we are working with that, and we hope to have him on very soon. Amazingly, there is a new case I wasn't aware of that a family member reached out to me with, and she has been working on the investigation of her brother's case for quite some time. And she is going to come on this podcast and talk about what she has been trying to do to investigate the unsolved murder of her brother's case. And hopefully there is some information lurking in the very near future. And we're going to hear her story and her brother's story as well. So look forward to that here very soon. We're going to be catching up on the podcast that we've missed and everything that's coming out. So please stay tuned. One of the things I did want to share with you guys and talk about is trying to find out some new techniques on investigating Krista's case. So watch for our social media because we will have some polls and some questions in regards to that. Thank you so much for listening and see what you can't do to support Lila's Law. If you or someone you know has been a victim of domestic violence or sexual assault, whether it happened yesterday, today, or 25 years, 50 years ago, there is a place here in Wichita you can go. The Wichita Area Sexual Assault Center. Their 24-hour hotline you can reach out day or night, 365 days a year. And you can reach them at 316-263-0185. They provide medical advocacy, law enforcement and court advocacy, support counseling, support groups, therapy services, and educational programs. Please remember, you don't have to go through this alone. I also want to remind people, we have multiple military bases here in the Kansas area, and 
multiple military bases across the United States and internationally. And victims of sexual violence, unfortunately, happens a lot on military bases. So I want to make sure that we are covering and letting people know that there are helplines for you as well. So, if you are a victim of violence, you don't have to be alone. If you have been a victim of sexual assault, remember, the assault was not your fault. You did not cause it to happen. It is solely the fault of your perpetrator. There are organizations there to help you, and they are committed to supporting you and your family members in the most sensitive and private ways possible. So guidelines for reporting. Here is a number for one of the military numbers. They say to immediately report any sexual assault, call the sexual assault response hotline at 759-HELP, which is 4357. This is the line for the Sexual Assault Prevention and Response, SAPR, Topeka office for the McConnell Air Force Base. It's a 24-7 hotline. Again, that's 759-HELP. They also have one for the VA, and it's 316-759-1872. The DOD also has a support safe helpline that is operated through a contract through RAIN, Rape, Abuse, and Incest International Network, on behalf of the Department of Defense. RAIN is the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization and also operates the National Sexual Assault Hotline, 1-800-656-HOPE, and online RA-1-800-656-HOPE, and online.rainn.org. When you need to talk, telephone helpline is 24-7. It's confidential and has resources to assist. Their phone number is 877-995-5247. They have a safe help room. There is also a self-helpline app. You can go and you can download the app for free in any of the app stores. There are services out there to help. It is a self-help line for military personnel. When I attended Take Back the Night last night for our Wichita Area Sexual Assault Center, I have always thought I did a good job of making sure I was providing resources at the beginning of our podcast and I thought I was making sure I was reaching out to all communities and making sure I was trying to create a web across Kansas and reaching out into all communities. And it wasn't until I walked past one booth that I realized I had completely lost and never covered one community. We have multiple military bases here in the Kansas area. And I never addressed the sexual assaults and the needs of those families that live on those bases. I never talked about resources for those bases. And I never reached out to have anyone that works within those organizations on our podcast. And I want to apologize to you guys because... I want to admit, I never even thought of it. And I have been really kicking myself the last 24 hours that it wasn't even something that I thought of. Because 
as we, and if you follow our social media, I always say that as pros, you always train to learn. And I thought I was learning every day. And obviously, I have not learned enough. And I still have a long way to go. But one of my focuses is, is if anyone hears this and they have a story to share, a case within this criteria that has gone cold that they want attention to, please reach out to me. Please let me know. I want to hear your stories. If there is something that you believe needs to be discussed, please reach out to me and let's talk about it. And remember, you're not alone. There are resources and we're going to have those resources added to our lines.